You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. As I was um, spending time with the Lord this morning, I uh, was wondering how to start this message. Um, and, and the thought occurred to me as I uh, look around and I see the plethora of information that comes our way through various means. Um, I just, just to give an example of uh, just how many podcasts there are out there, I'm just almost almost amazed but mostly discouraged that it's just so much, it's just so much information. And uh, I guess what I was thinking about this morning was this morning is not just about information. Um, We don't need more information, we need to love the information that we have. We don't just need more knowledge of God, but we need to love what we know of God. John 7, 18, Jesus says, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. To be honest, I don't know many of you. Many of you don't know me. There's a lot of new faces, which is amazing. Um, So I'm wondering how you know you can trust what I have to say to you this morning. I could be here because I love the sound of my voice. You can ask my wife about that later. But honestly, why, why, why should you listen to me? So I'm asking you this morning to test me with the words of Jesus. Let them be your measuring rod by which you discern the truth. Does this message align with the glory of God? Am I here to make much of God or of me? Am I proclaiming His glory, His holiness, or is this just more information to pack into your minds like a test? Four and four is eight. Yes, we know that. But do we love the truth? So please join me um, in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24. I'll be reading from from the ESV. Luke 9, 23, 24. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I have three questions for us this morning. Three questions I really care about. The first question is, do you want to go after him? If so, If you answer yes, the second question 
is, are you losing your life in order to go after him? If you answer yes to this question, the last question is, why are you losing your life? Before we get into it, I want to make it clear what this passage is about. There's lots to deal with here in just two short verses, but it's all pointing to something wonderful and big and great and glorious, namely God. I don't want us to stop at any of these questions and have them terminate on themselves. Jesus does not intend for us to stop at these questions. They're meant to lead us to something more. The question of, do you want to follow him, is meant to take you to, are you losing your life? And underneath that, underneath, are you losing your life, is the question, why are you losing your life? My aim and my hope is that we will all go away wanting desperately to lose our lives, not as the end goal, but as a means to something better. So we're going to start in verse 23, start unpacking it. These verses are simple, and just to give the broad context, 23, verse 23 is this, this statement, I call it the statement, while verse 24 explains why that statement exists, why it's true. Verse 24 is the because of verse 23. Verse 23 exists because verse 24 does. So let's start verse 23. And he said to them, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the first point in question is, do you want to follow him? Do you want to go after him? The ESV doesn't show it as well as uh, numerous other translations. The word would, if anyone would come after me, is want, or translated properly, desire. The NIV, the CSB, NLT, NASB, LEB, I'll translate the word desire, want, wish. So, to say it again, whoever wants, whoever desires to come after me. So the first question is, again, do you want to go after him? I mean, I know the right answer. Just like four and four is eight. If you've been in the church for 10 minutes, you know the right answer. But I'm asking us to consider seriously, do you want to go after Jesus? Not should you go after Jesus? Is that the right thing to do? Do you want to? So many who profess the name of Christ make it a point of going and desiring after many things. They seek after much. But what about Christ? What, what do we desire? Or to say it better, is your desire for him greater than your desire for all other things? What do your actions, your choices, your thoughts, your emotions speak or display of your desires? What desires do you spend your time, your finances, your energy, your emotions, your thoughts on? We 
We need to ask ourselves these questions. So if you answered yes, I want to go after him, I want to, I want to, I desire that, then there are some things we must do in order to go after him. I say must because these commands are imperative commands, meaning they must be done in order for the first part to go after Jesus to happen. As an example, you must start your car if you want to drive it. That might sound really simple, and it is. You must intake oxygen if you want to live. And if you want to have a baby, there has to be something that comes before that. In the same way, if you desire to come after him, you must now this is the list. In verse 23, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So we must do these things, but what does it practically look like to deny oneself? What does taking up your cross really mean? Boy, what a throwaway sentence if I ever heard one. I've heard that so often, and I've said that so often. I'm just going to deny myself. What does that mean? I think the first command of the three um, to deny oneself is explained by the following two commands. So we are to deny ourselves by taking up our cross daily and following Jesus to the cross. Let me explain. We all know what crosses are for and they are for dying. They are intended as a way to lose one's life quite literally. To say no to oneself is to deny oneself, and to deny oneself is, I think, what it means to take up our cross daily. And this brings us to the second point. Are you losing your life? Are you denying yourself, your self? I ask this because this passage says we must take up our cross daily and follow Jesus to death. We are to die every day if we desire to come after him. But die to what? What are we dying to? My whole self? Should we deny ourselves marriage, family, children, success in business? What is Jesus talking about? Let me read a few passages that I hope will illuminate what this looks like. Romans 8, 12, and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, the key is put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Colossians 3.5 unpacks this a little deeper. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He goes on to explain this. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, NIV translates that, lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me stop here and make a remark that I will show later, but I think it needs to be said now. When Jesus commands us to deny ourselves, take up our cross every day, and follow him to death, Jesus does not only mean 
evil things like adultery or lust or murder or pride. It's far more radical than that. When Jesus says deny yourself, he means everything. Consider his words in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So what then? Is Jesus calling us to a life of nothing? No family? No goods? Nothing? There are some who would claim Jesus is calling us to a life of asceticism, which is denying all physical, worldly pleasures while focusing only on spiritual matters. Let me rescue this message that, from that false idea with a quote from St. Augustine. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Let me say it again. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. To say it in a different way, you and I love God less when we love other things like family and friends and goods and food, not for the sake of God. It's not wrong to love your spouse. In fact, it's wicked not to. But is it because you love God? Do you love people because you love God? I'm trying to help us focus on a level of desire. What's the desire in all this? Jesus talks about loving of things and desiring of things, not for their own sake, but for the things that they point to what they are reflecting in themselves of the character of God. In John 6, this is a great example. After Jesus has fed the 5,000, the crowd finds him again and asks, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you enjoy the food I gave you? You should have rejected it and spent your time praying. What he's saying is that the bread and the fish were meant to lead the people to something better. Instead, the people are after Jesus not because of Jesus, but because of what he can give them, mainly food. Getting back to our text, Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves of all things but him. Not in a way that we deprive ourselves of all things. These things are meant to be enjoyed, but they are also meant to, be, to lead us back to the giver of these things, not terminating on themselves. 
And this is what verse 24 is going to explain for us in detail. And this brings up that last question, why are you losing your life? What's the bottom? So verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There are two parts to this verse. The first is whoever would save his life will lose it, and the second, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. First point I want to make is the word for lose is to destroy fully. So I take Jesus' command in verse 23 to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, to mean lose your life, destroy fully your life, give it away. Like I said, verse 24 is explaining verse 23. We are to obey Jesus' commands in verse 23, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Because if we don't, if we don't deny ourselves, if we don't lose our life, we will lose it. We will have our life fully destroyed. But the flip side to say it, the positive way to say it is, if you do, if you lose your life, if you take up your cross daily and follow him, you will have your life saved. In all of this, I think there is one big, crucial part, and I think it's the key to understanding what Jesus is really saying. Notice that the word would is in this, in the first, whoever would. Again, that's translated as desire in the Greek. So the first part of verse 24 goes like this. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Jesus does not say whoever saves his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will save it. It's so much more radical. He says whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Consider the rich young ruler. I hope this explains what I'm trying to get at. He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with the Ten Commandments. The ruler says, I've obeyed all these since I was a boy. What's Jesus' response? Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he, the ruler, heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This man serves to us as an example. He loved his life. He desired to save his life. He wanted to save and keep the wealth that he had rather than deny himself the riches for Jesus' sake. Jesus didn't say, get rid of all your stuff because it's wicked and it's evil. It's just so much more radical than that. Jesus is going so much deeper than that. It's all about the heart. Matthew 13, 44, if you remember, it's the parable of the treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. 
What's the difference between these two men? The rich young ruler did not consider Jesus of greater value than the keeping of his wealth. The other sold all that he had and gave it away to gain the treasure in the field. The kingdom of heaven, King Jesus. So what's the key? It's desire. As I see it, the question is, do you desire to save your life? Or will you lose it because you want Jesus, you desire Jesus? The emphasis, I believe, is found in the last phrase. Whoever destroys fully his life for my sake. What's for my sake mean? For me, for the reason of me. Not for the reason of money, not for, the, not for gain of, of riches, not for accolades, for me. Are you losing your life for me? Because if you do, you will save it. The question, are you losing your life, is meant to bring you to the question, why are you losing your life? Are you losing it because of him? For him? Have you so tasted and seen the supremacy of Christ in all things that you know nothing in this world? can satisfy your soul but him alone. But is this, is this really what the text is saying? I want you to question me on this. Is this what the text is saying? Because then you might say, as I did when I read it, so why does Jesus say you will save your life? Shouldn't he say, if you lose your life for my sake, for me, you will gain me? I mean, that's what I'm saying this text says. I'm saying if you lose your life for Jesus, you get Jesus, because that's what you want. That's why you're doing it, for Jesus. But why does Jesus not say it that way? Why does he say you will save your life? I believe Jesus says it this way because for those who have been born again, Jesus is your life. To say you will save your life and you will gain Christ is not a contradiction. It's the same thing, it's the same reality. Because Jesus has become your life. Listen to Deuteronomy 30. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life. John 11, 24 and 25, Martha says to Jesus, this is when Lazarus is dead, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus could have said, you're right. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 say, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This, this is great. This is a great part. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Do you know how easy it is to give away one dollar when you've just been given a check for a billion dollars? 
Do you know how easy it is to give your house away for free when you've just inherited a mansion? Do you know how easy and joyful it is to deny yourself and take up your cross when you've found real, true, satisfying life, which is Christ? That's the easy part. The hard part is seeing that reality. That's what we're fighting for every day. Jesus satisfies our souls is not up for debate. The question is, do we believe it? That's the hard part. Philippians 3, if you'd turn there with me, I think this really just, just a broad stroke, just brings it all together. Philippians 3, verse 7. This is Paul talking. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now we might say to Paul, Paul, do you know how much suffering I've gone through? How could you say that? Count it all as rubbish. Paul, you were never married. You don't know what it's like to see your wife suffer. Paul, you never had kids. You, ne- you don't know what it's like to watch them suffer. Paul was well acquainted with suffering. Just read 1 Corinthians 11. But this is the reason why Paul brings this up. It is precisely because of our suffering that we need something better. Suffering with no goal, no purpose is meaningless. And our suffering is not meaningless. It is precisely because we don't want to be Job's wife and curse God and die that we need to see God as better than what we are losing. The only reason this makes sense, the only reason this passage makes sense is only if we see him as better than what we are losing, namely our life. He's better. I've contemplated just saying that for half an hour. He's better. He's better. He's better. Because my thick head and my hard heart do not believe that most days. Every day you lose your life for the sake of Christ, you are saying to the world, to your soul, and to God, He's better. He's infinitely better. He's not only bought me salvation, he has become my salvation. He's not only given me life, he has become my life. So is that enough? Is that enough for us? Have we so seen and tasted God that we know that's enough? Is he the mansion you want? If he doesn't look like a mansion, if he looks like 10 cents, 
giving away a dollar will be impossible. I want to use an example from, um, from the Old Testament and just ask you to kind of come into the story. Imagine you are an Israelite. You've been told all your life about the promised land, and that's what it's about. Now, you need to understand we have no concept of this, but um, imagine something you desire greatly. Just, just let it come to mind. What do you want? What do you really, really want? For the Israelites, it's the land. It's the promised land. It was first promised to Abraham, and it's been 600 years of waiting Not only that, your father's 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 father was promised this, and every generation that has come since has hoped to receive it in their lifetime. So here you are, on the border of the promised land, the thing you've been waiting for all your life. You've been waiting 40 years in the wilderness, and now you're ready Now imagine you are from the tribe of Levi, and here you are waiting to be given your portion of the land. One day Aaron gathers your tribe together for a big announcement. What could it be? Perhaps a glimpse of the inheritance, maybe a taste of how great the land will be. Maybe more spies were sent, and they brought back more produce, and you get to taste. It's in your hand. This is what we have to look forward to. Aaron steps up and he tells you that the Lord has spoken to him in regard to the land. Yes, yes, this is what it's about. I've been waiting for this, Aaron. Just tell me how great the land's going to be. Tell us how great our inheritance is going to be. So Aaron quiets you all down. You're very excited. And he says, the Lord has spoken to me. And he said, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion. You need to feel the weight of this. All you've hoped for, your whole life you've been waiting for has just been taken from you. You were promised by God Almighty an inheritance, a portion forever. I can imagine how upset and angry and confused they must have been. But Aaron isn't done speaking to you yet. You quiet down. And he says again, the Lord has said that you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. And then he says, because God told me, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people. God is your portion. What does it mean for God to be your portion? It means you can say with the psalmist, one thing I ask, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. It means you can say with Paul, you count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. It means you can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it means 
that when God takes your job, your money, your health, your spouse, your children, when he takes your very breath away and you are facing death, you can say, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Are you so satisfied with God, not mainly his gifts, not mainly his blessings, but him? Are we satisfied in him? Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I don't take that as a light command, nor is it easy. But the power lies in the next phrase. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Why and how can we keep ourselves free from the love of money and be content with everything that we have and everything that we don't? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Because you have God. And when you have God, you are, are not in want. The question, do you want him, is not just icing on the cake of Christianity. It's not the cherry on top. It is what it means to be a Christian. At the bottom of what it means to be born again is not mainly a change, not mainly a change in outward appearance, nor is it mainly a change of knowing the right answer, but a changing of desires. The main and decisive difference between you and your unbelieving neighbor is this. You want God more than anything else. That is what it means to know him and to glorify him and to love him. There are so many people around the world that outdo me in good deeds. Just so many. Just so many. Bringing over soup. I, I fall short of this. I, I just don't make soup and I don't know how to bring it over. It's just weird and awkward at the door and I just don't even do it. But what I'm trying to say is <laughs> that's not the point. Because these people outdo us every day and they hate God. The sign of the new birth is not that you want out of hell. No one wants to suffer. It's not that you want peace in your life. Everybody wants peace. It's not that you want a healthy marriage or good kids. No one hopes for a broken relationship. The sign of the new birth is a new desire, namely for God himself. I haven't preached very much, but in the times I have, I've gone to a few churches in the area, and um, when I talk to some people afterwards, um, it's interesting, they'll say, well, nice, good sermon, and then they'll go into a different topic, and I think, okay, they, they didn't hear, they didn't want to, whatever, that's fine, we'll talk about them, and that's great. 
but you hear it in their words as they're talking about their life. And you realize that they see that God is not their portion and it's bothering them. They feel helpless. And they should. But how sweet is it to tell them the greatest news in all the world, that Jesus died for this very reason. This is the good news. But what is the good news? Well, the first part of the good news is bad news. That all of us at one time were rebels, and the thing about rebels is not that they see the greatness of the king, but that they don't, and that's why they choose to rebel. The very nature of a rebel is that you do not love the king, and therefore you rebel. You rebel not because you see and know the king as your portion and your life, your treasure, but because you don't. People rebel because they believe there's something better than that which they are rebelling against. Second Corinthians says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And there is the bad news. No rebel can see Christ as he is. They don't see him as glorious. They don't see him as precious. They don't see him as the treasure of the universe and therefore they do not want him. And to lose their life to gain that which they do not want seems laughable. But this is why Jesus died, so that you might see him as he is and know him and love him and treasure him as he is to be known and loved and treasured. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came, Jesus came, died, rose again, so that you might have life and life abundantly. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's John 17, 3. But my question is, know him as what? Boring? Mythological? A waste of time? Unnecessary? Worth putting off? Not worth losing your life for, surely. This is the good news, that Jesus died to save you from sin, to bring you to God, whom you were made for. You were made to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's why we want him. That's the bottom of it. Why should we go after him? Because he's better Christ did not die so that we could say with our mouths, God is better, and hate that truth in our heart. He died in order that we would not only know the truth, but love the truth. The devil knows more about God than we do, and he hates God. We don't need more head knowledge. We need a new heart and power that loves the truth that God is our portion. So in order to lose your life, you need a superior treasure, superior than all the treasures you are losing. 
You need a better desire than just a desire to save your life. You need power, and that power is found in knowing God as the treasure of the universe, that which is better than all things. The reality, the reality is you, we cannot treasure what we don't know. But if you know him, and I'm saying capital K, capital N, capital O, capital W, not just know of him, but know him, you will treasure him. This is not works-based salvation. We do not desire him or treasure him or seek him so as to gain him or to prove that we are worthy. We are not earning our salvation. We are enjoying our salvation, namely Jesus, because he has become our salvation. The response of all who have been born again is, I want him more than anything else. And Luke Hyde falls short of this every day of his life. Which is why I love the cross and I love Jesus. Why does David say in Psalm 13, give light to my eyes lest I sleep in death? It's because he doesn't see God for all that he is. And it's scary when you read this and you read wonderful things about God and there's just nothing going on. That's scary. It's why we call it a fight of faith. It's why we love the cross because we fall short of this every day. And Christ is sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God that should have come on us. And instead now, instead of wrath, well done, good and faithful servant. That's amazing. So how do we see him? The psalmist says, give light to my eyes. How do we give light to our eyes? It's impossible for us. So what do we do? We take his word and we fixate ourselves on it. We fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfection of our faith. The only way to see the value of something is to know that something or that someone. So the word of God, Jesus Christ, is your life. If you want to know him and taste him and treasure him as he is, not as the world sees him, but as he is, then this is your life. The word of God, Christ Jesus, is your life. Let me close with 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ suffered also once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ Jesus suffered for my sin, me, the unrighteous, and him, the righteous. But this is, I think, the best part. He did this in order to bring you to God. Not so that when you come to him, you can say, well, that's boring, 
or that you can be disinterested in him or unfazed by him, but that you can be satisfied in him forever. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what the cross is accomplishing. It's a promise. It's a promise. Jesus is bringing you to God, and when you come to God, you will not see him as the world sees him, but as he is. So we fight for this truth, and that's why, we're gonna, that's why we sing songs about the beauty of Christ and the desirability of Christ. That's why we pray. <laughs> Open my eyes. I wake up an unbeliever every morning, and I don't really mean that, but you, I hope you get what I'm saying. I don't wake up thinking, wow, Christ, amazing. I'm ready to lose my life. I wake up thinking, man, I don't want to be awake. I don't want to be up. But then you meet with him, and he tells you just how great and satisfying he is. And by faith, we see him as he is. When you cannot see him as he is, don't despair. Trust in his word. He promises to all who are thirsty that they may come and drink from him the fountain of living water. Go to him. He will not. He will not pass you by. He will meet with you and he will satisfy your soul both now in part and forevermore fully. Let's pray. So God, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that anyone would come here, that I would be standing here loving a smidgen of who you are is a miracle. To see and know and taste you as the greatest treasure of the universe is a miracle. And that's why we pray Give light to our eyes lest we sleep in death. But our confidence is not in our ability to treasure you. Our confidence is in you and you alone. So let your word do what your word does, which is awaken us to all that you are for us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name.